now turn to our passage for this morning. Pastor Bill is continuing our Mark series sermon entitled, This King Who Restores. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. They came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, Immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and he fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. People came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described it to them, what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Good morning. If we've not yet met, my name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline. And as Luke has just said, we're continuing our study in the book of Mark today. We are in that section where Jesus is bringing the power of the kingdom into this world. And as we noted last week, we're seeing that he's challenging a lot of our modern notions of spirituality. And so last week we saw Jesus challenge the idea that God is really mostly just interested in how we behave, and apart from that, he's relatively hands-off in our lives. It's an idea that if you buy into, just has to leave you cold toward God, because why would you be interested in someone who has no real interest in you? This week we're going to see Jesus challenge another modern belief that also reduces our passion for God. It's the belief that the evil inside of us it's just not really a big deal. That sure, we're not perfect, but whatever is wrong with us is more easily contained, more readily dealt with, than previous generations used to believe. And therefore, you don't really need a radical solution to it. You don't need a great big God who breaks into your world to save you, 
because there's just not a lot to save you from. We don't even like in the modern world to talk about being saved or salvation. Those words make us bristle. Think about your friends, your fellow students, your co-workers. Do they think of themselves as people who need to be saved? People who are that bad, people who are out of control, people who have no hope of mastering themselves unless someone with more power steps in from the outside to help them. People who do not recognize that we have nothing to offer this one who steps in, and so he's doing that simply purely out of mercy. Do the people around you think like that? You realize, no, of course they don't. They may have even told you they don't. Instead, they're what? They're offended when you say things like that. You actually may be offended right now when I say things like that. As a general rule in this country, we think that we are pretty decent people. Sure, we might lose our temper sometime. Occasionally, we might eat or drink a little bit too much. We could be a little greedy, a little too driven at work. But honestly, it isn't everybody. It's the way that we think. And even if we do slip up sometimes, it's not really like those things are out of control. And so we think that as long as the bad things that we do stay within certain limits, certain tolerances, we're pretty much okay. And because we're okay, we really don't need a savior, so why get all that excited about Jesus? See how the two are connected? If the evil inside is not all that big a deal, Jesus won't be all that big because you don't need him to be. Now, why do people think like that? that the evil inside is not that big a deal. One reason is that they haven't stopped to consider how the bad things that we find ourselves doing have a progression, that they tend to move in a certain direction, that when you cross a moral line, a line that you previously thought was out of bounds for you, something you were sure that you would never do, once you cross a line, it's easier to cross it again. You've had this experience. We've all had this experience. Every one of us has an internal sense of what we consider right and wrong, what is acceptable behavior and what is not acceptable behavior. We all draw, draw a line between the two of those somewhere. I understand that we all draw that line in different places, but we all do it. We all have that line. And we've all said to ourselves, oh, I would never fill in the blank. I would never eat that much drink that much, say that kind of thing to my kid, treat my husband that way, go that far with my girlfriend, take something that wasn't mine. list goes on of all the standards that we have for ourselves, standards of what we consider acceptable behavior and unacceptable, and so we draw a line between the two, and we promise ourselves that we will never cross that line. You know, other people might do that. We feel bad for them, condescending. But we, we, we would never do that. And then what happens? You all know this because you all have done this. You cross that line. Doesn't have to be by much. Doesn't have to be all of the lines that you've drawn, but you cross one of those lines. And when you do that, it becomes easier to cross it again. It no longer bothers your conscience in the same way that it did before. You may not like doing it again, but it's a lot easier. And so you find yourself crossing that line again. 
You know what you do when you do that, when you cross that line, that moral boundary between what is and is not acceptable? When you cross that line, you have to have a line, don't you? So what do you do? You move the line. You draw a new boundary line for yourself. But notice in your life, think about it on your own, you never move that line higher, more moral. You always move it a little bit lower. So for example, maybe you grow up in the church and you might tell yourself, I would never look at pornography. And then you do. So what do you do? Well, you move the line. I would never look at that much pornography for that long. You cross the line, you move the line. Okay, maybe I'll look at it that much, but I would never look at a certain kind of porn. I would never act on the things that I'm looking at. The list goes on of all the lines that you absolutely would not cross that you then do. See how this works? Every time you do something wrong, every time you cross a line, it becomes easier to cross again, and so you move the line for yourself. Somebody once said to me, it's like taking the elevator down to a new level below ground. You can decide to stop riding the elevator for a little while, but at some point you get back on. And when you do, you don't start up at the ground floor. You start down at that last place that you got off, and then you go further down still. When you see this pattern in your own life, this trajectory, you start to realize people don't get better over time. They may pause the elevator, they may get off for a little while, but once you cross the line, once you sear your conscience, you keep moving in that same direction, steadily pushing boundaries. Now, you may be somebody who does that really slowly. And so it doesn't seem like it's a big deal, like whatever it is that you're doing is still relatively under control. But think about the trajectory that you're on. Think about where that trajectory takes you over time, even if it's slowly, and ask yourself if the end point of that trajectory is really where you want to go. C.S. Lewis thought about the impact of a lifetime of small steps in the same direction. And he noticed that even if you don't see big differences in any one moment, in any one thought, any one action, any one decision, those steps, even the small ones, lead progressively to one of two outcomes. And he says, we're, art, we're moving every day along a path that will lead us to either being, quote, a creature, which if you saw it now, you'd be strongly tempted to worship. You're becoming something utterly glorious. Or you're becoming a horror and a corruption, such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare, unquote. He gives an example elsewhere of what this kind of corruption looks like. Describes a person who, quote, begins with a grumbling mood and yourself still distinct from it, perhaps criticizing it. You can repent and come out of this mood again, but there may come a day when you can do that no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood, nor even to enjoy it, but just the grumble going on forever like a machine. You see what he's getting at here? You probably know people who are a little bit like this. 
people who once grumbled or complained, but who could still stop themselves. They still had an identity as a human being that was distinct apart from their complaining. It was a part of their personality, but it wasn't the whole person. And yet over time, they got to a place where they can't stop, where there is always something wrong with everything. They've gone from being a grumbler, a person who grumbles, person who sins, to a grumble, to the full flowering of sin, so that now it's taken them over. They're now an organic delivery system dedicated to the purpose of grumbling, to being a physical point in the universe from which spills an endless complaint an endless dissatisfaction with everything in the world. They've lost their humanity, the glory of being an image of God, dedicated to reflecting him and his glory everywhere they go, praising him for what he's made, praising him for what he's done. And now they can only complain and draw attention to everything that they think is wrong with the world. That's where evil is set on taking you one small step at a time, to being a nightmare, a human being with the humanity scooped out of you, a being very much like the man you meet in Mark chapter 5. This man is possessed. We don't know why he is or how he got that way, but somehow over the course of his lifetime, he's gone down in the elevator increasingly experiencing whole new levels of evil until he's no longer in charge of what he's doing no longer in charge of the evil that he does, but evil is now in charge of him. It's now controlling him, now ruling him. He takes the truth of a passage like Ephesians 2 that says, before Jesus rescues us, we are all ruled by Satan, that the devil is at work in us somehow so that we obey him by disobeying God. This man takes that truth and shows us not the beginning stages, of what that road looks like, the first couple steps on that road. He shows us what it's like far down on that road. He is ruled to such a degree that the timeline for losing his humanity has been compressed. He experiences more of the consequences of that long road that moves away from God than most people do in their lifetimes. But he experiences the same thing that all of the rest of us do because it's the same road. And as Jesus interacts with this man, you're going to see three things from this passage. Three things that are helpful for us as we think about what to do with the evil that we find inside ourselves. First, you see the devastation of evil. You see the nature, the power, the goal of evil. Second, you see the restoration of God, the nature, the power, and the goal of God. And thirdly, you see the cost of restoration, the devastation of evil, the restoration of God and the cost of that restoration. First, the devastation of evil. Notice here, you learn three things about evil as it takes over a person. One, it, takes, it affects you personally. You can see this in various ways here. For instance, this man is not in his right mind. Part of Jesus' ministry, verse 15, is to restore him so that he is in his right mind, which tells you what, before Jesus engages with him, He's not thinking clearly. 
Evil has so overwhelmed him that it affects how he thinks. That's part of what evil does. It takes away your ability to think and reason correctly. And so your mind, your brain functions, functions well, but it functions in a distorted way. And so you end up making conclusions and coming to find connections that just don't line up with reality. A fancy term for this, the theologians call it the noetic effect of sin. It's kind of a fun phrase to say. Noetic, having to do with your intellect. The noetic effect of sin means that sin distorts how you think. And it distorts your thinking so effectively you're not even aware of it. Evil impairs this man's ability to think and it impairs how he takes care of himself. He's now clothed, the implication being that he was not clothed before. Luke in his gospel tells you directly that the man was naked. Somehow in this man's mind it makes sense to him to take all his clothes off. From within his own distorted mind it's just obvious to him that that's a better approach to life. Even though an outsider would say, uh, no, clearly that's not better, especially here in the tombs. Man's not in his right mind, not taking care of himself. And worse, he's destroying himself. Verse 5, night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he's always crying out, cutting himself with stones. This is a man in misery. He's looking for some way to relieve his mi misery, his inner torment, crying out, cutting. Nothing's working. He's always crying out, always cutting himself. He's not getting better. Nothing that he's doing is helping. That's how evil affected him personally. Secondly, it also affected him socially. He's isolated, cut off from people, wasn't living in and around people. Instead, verse 3, he lived among the tombs. And again, we're not told how he got there. We don't know the backstory. We know he didn't start there. We don't know anything about his mother, but we know he had one. He started his life in a community with a family of some kind. Family he's not living with now. Verse 19, Jesus tells him, go home to your friends. Go home. Tombs were not his home. To your friends. He once had friends. This is what evil does. It cuts you off from other people. It alienated him from his home, from his friends, and he now lives where literally with one foot in the grave. Devastated personally, devastated socially. And thirdly, no one can help him. He can't help himself. We've already seen that. No one else can help him either. And people have tried. Verse 4, he'd often been bound with shackles and chains. It was clear to everybody else, <laughs> this guy's a danger. Definitely a danger to himself, probably a danger to the rest of us. He was a threat. He was a threat who needed to be controlled, but couldn't be. Because verse 4, no one had the strength to subdue him. He wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles in pieces. Everything that everyone tried failed. Why? They're trying an external solution to an internal problem. Didn't work for him just like it has not worked down throughout human history. And yet we keep trying. We keep trying to deal with sin and with evil by controlling it from the outside. 
Why doesn't it work? Because there's something inside of people that doesn't want it to work. Notice this. This man did not have the ability to help himself, but he did have the ability to sabotage other people's attempts to help. He had that ability and he had that desire. Evil has turned him into his own worst enemy, but he didn't know it. If people are trying to help you so that you don't hurt yourself and you think that the best way that you can, the best idea is to undermine their help, you really are not in your right mind. He's absolutely wretched. There is no help for him on earth. He has become Lewis's living nightmare. And please hear this. Nobody plans that future for themselves. No one wakes up one day and says, you know, when I grow up, I want to live in a graveyard by myself. Cut myself, run around naked, screaming, thinking that I'm okay clearly when I'm not. I want to be beyond help. A terror to myself and to everybody else. Nobody thinks that way. But that's the path that we are on from birth. Because that's the purpose of evil, including the purpose of the evil that you find inside yourself. What is evil? Evil is the not God. Evil hates God and hates anything to do with God. Anything that shows you who God is, including the creation. And so evil actively sets itself against God, and especially against humanity, as that part of creation that most clearly tells you who God is and reflects him to the rest of the world. Evil's purpose is to destroy humanity in whatever way you can. You see that very clearly when the demons are cast out of the man. They could only make so much headway in this man, despite how ruined he was. But when turned loose, their hatred of God just blossoms. They kill an entire herd of pigs simply for what? For the sake of destroying them. You can't see the spirits. They're invisible, but you see their intentions that they were only there in the man to destroy him completely until there was nothing left. You have to take evil seriously. It will stop at nothing trying to destroy you. You have to take it seriously in all its manifestations, even the little ones, because those are simply steps along a longer trajectory that takes you where you do not want to go. You have to take it seriously, and it's really hard to take seriously because evil works to blind you. People from that region knew this man. Verse 14, they came to see what happened. Verse 16, they heard those who had seen it. They those people described what had happened to this man, to the pigs. The people heard about it. They can see the man sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they don't like it. They don't want this. Verse 17, they beg Jesus to depart from their region. Basically, they're saying, Jesus, we'd rather have this guy running around out of his mind, yelling and screaming and God knows what in up there on the mountain, keeping the neighborhood up at night. We'd rather have to deal with that than deal with you and whatever it is that you're up to. Given the choice, 
we'd prefer this man ruined and destroyed, dead at some point, with the pigs alive. We'd prefer that to ever having you here. So respectfully, Jesus, please go away. We don't want you. We'd rather have the crazy man. Now, what is that? That's crazy. Not better for the man, not better for the community. They want something less good than what God in his mercy has chosen to give them, which tells you what? They're also not in their right minds. Only they don't know it. They could see earlier that the man was not in his right mind, but they're blinded to their own wrong-mindedness, blinded to their insanity, just like he was. That's what evil does. Whether it takes you to the extreme of this man or it stops short like it did with his community, evil cuts you off from thinking about what is truly in your best interests. Cuts you off and you don't even know it. You end up thinking you're okay when you're not. And so my fear this morning is that when we read a passage like this, a passage that is doing its absolute best to say, here is what the condition of humanity is really like. We come into this world and we are each ruled by evil, personally devastated, cut off and isolated from each other, and there is no power on earth that can help us. We read a passage that says as clearly as possible what human beings are like in our natural condition. And we say, yeah, no. That's not really the way it is. My case is different. I'm qualitatively different from that. I'm not as bad. I may not be as good as I could be, but I'm not that bad either. I still love my kids. I'm a decent spouse. I care about my parents. I'm reliable and productive at work. Yeah, I give in to things more than I should, but I'm not like that. Evil doesn't rule me. Respectfully, if that's what you're thinking, respectfully and kindly, this passage says what? You're not in your right mind. That's hard to hear. But at what else can you call it when you draw a moral line in your life, a line that you said was good to draw, and then you step over it? You don't think especially well of yourself for stepping over it. You feel a little bad. But then you proceed not to cry out for help, for someone to rescue you from yourself, because obviously you can't rescue you. You don't cry out for help. What do you do? You draw a new line, one that you swear you won't cross. And you repeat the cycle all over again. If you watched someone from the outside do that over and over and over and over again, would you say that they're in their right minds? That they could help themselves? Control themselves? Of course not. Why then would you give yourself a pass when it's you? Isn't the willingness to approve in yourself what you would condemn in someone else, isn't that the evidence that you're not in your right mind? It's part of the devastation of evil. It's point one. 
Point two, the restoration that Jesus brings, the hope that Jesus brings. What's the first thing you notice about this man after Jesus helps him? Verse 15, he's sitting there clothed in his right mind, the reversal of everything that was wrong about him before. Before, no one could control him. No one could master him because he was mastered by something inside that drove him to destroy himself. But now he's completely calm. He is now as calm as the sea was that we talked about last week when Jesus told it to be calm. He's sitting there able to control himself. You ever think much about the wonderful gift that self-control is? Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit, something that the Spirit of God produces in you, something you find in multiple places in Scripture as the evidence of what happens when God touches someone's life. It's an amazing gift that I don't know that we think about enough. I have a friend who has reminded me a number of times of something that I said to her a couple decades ago. She had said to me, I can't wait until I get to heaven and I can eat a dozen donuts at a time. It's her idea of heaven, if we're honest. Most of us think that's really what heaven is. This place where there are no consequences to doing whatever we want, whenever we want, where we get to be two-year-olds for eternity, live without limits. Friend has reminded me relatively recently that when she said that to me, I looked at her and I said, I wonder if heaven isn't actually where I'll eat half a donut and stop. Stop because I'm satisfied. I'll have had half a donut. I'll have enjoyed that. And because I've enjoyed it, I won't need to be controlled by it. I won't need to eat anymore. And I'll stop. Heaven is the place where you won't live an out-of-controlled life. It's where you live a self-controlled life. One of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. What does that mean? That means that heaven is the place where that fruit comes into full maturity, where you no longer have to have someone else try to bind you with chains that you absolutely refuse to be bound by. But it's a place where you control yourself. Not because you have to, not because you're afraid of bad consequences if you don't, but because you want to. Because that desire is now inside of you and you are absolutely thrilled because it's a good desire. Think about times where you ex exercise self-control now. Doesn't that often give you an experience that you like? Something you're proud of? When you go to bed when you know that you should instead of staying up for no reason, being exhausted the next day? Where you don't take a second helping of dessert or a third, even though you could? When you hold your tongue instead of exploding all over your child and ruining the relationship. When you don't give in to something that's beaten you over and over and over and over again. Don't you feel good afterward? Don't you look back on that moment and think, wow, that, that was good. I'm really glad I handled it that way. What is it that you're tasting there? You're tasting the goodness of self-control. You're tasting the very early stages of that fruit that's going to ripen and mature. The joy of being in charge of yourself, in charge of what you think, charge of what you say, charge of what you do, charge of what you feel. What Jesus just gave, gave this man is not a little thing. It's the restoration of the image of God to him. 
to again be able to reflect the God who made him. Jesus restores him to himself, and he restores him to his community. He sends him back to his friends, verse 19. Jesus reconnects him with people. Man takes full advantage of that restoration. Verse 20, he went back to the Decapolis. That's a Greek word because this is a Gentile area. It's a Greek word for a certain geographical region that describes 10 city-states. This man is now going throughout the region, rubbing shoulders with people that he used to terrorize. He's gone way beyond Jesus' command to go back to his friends. He's been restored to humanity. Now that he's been restored, there's no limit to who his friends might be. So he goes throughout the region. And as he does, people are no longer afraid of him. Verse 20, they marvel when they see him and experience him. Jesus restores the man to himself, restores him to community, and restores him to God. The man begs Jesus, verse 18, that he might go with him, might be with him. If you've been with us the last couple of months, you realize this is disciple language. This is what Jesus called people to, to be with him. And that's what this man now wants. The restored image of God wants to be with his God. Jesus restored him personally, socially, spiritually, and gave him a purpose. Sends him, verse 19, to tell your friends how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Man's no longer wandering among the tombs and on the mountains, consumed with himself. He's now turned outward. He's been restored and he's carrying the message of restoration. And notice it's a very simple message. Here's what God has done for me. Here's how he has had mercy on me. It's a message that every one of us can take. The man has had almost no time with Jesus, no deep theological training, no real training at all, and Jesus sends him out. It's actually the first person that Jesus sends out. This is the first missionary. And as an aside, where does he send him to? He sends him to the Gentiles, people like you and me. We are not an afterthought to God. Jesus was thinking about us that long ago. Jesus sends him out not with an apologetic agenda, not to persuade people to believe in Jesus, not to convince people that they're wrong, simply to say, here is what God has done for me. Simple message that anyone can carry regardless of how old you are. Teens, elementary school people, this is for you just as much as it is for anyone else. It's a message that we all carry regardless of how old we are or of how long we've been with Jesus. This is what real spirituality looks like. It looks like you restored to yourself, restored to other people, restored to God, living now with purpose. Which means that if you have cried out to Jesus to rescue you, to save you from yourself, you should start to see these things in your own life. Again, the timeline is compressed here. You saw the purpose of evil taken to its extreme. You're now seeing the purpose of God equally extreme. But you should see yourself growing in each of these four areas. You should see yourself growing in self-control. You should see yourself building relationships more than you're tearing them apart. You should see yourself longing to be with Jesus. 
and you should see yourself taking up his mission on earth. You're not going to see any of those fulfilled perfectly while you're still growing, but you should see yourself regularly increasing in each area. And if you don't, there's a remedy. Because that means that evil is pushing back. What's the remedy? You cry out to Jesus to save you from how evil is affecting you. You cry out to him one more time to restore you. That's what he came on to this earth to do. That's why he's there with this man. Didn't just come for this man, came also for all of us who follow after. So point one, the forces of evil are bent on destroying the image of God wherever it's found. Point two, Jesus is committed to restoring the image of God, to casting out all evil. It's amazing news that point three comes with a huge cost. 2,000 pigs die. It's a herd that's obviously way more than any one household needs, which tells you what. They were being raised. Herdsmen were hired. The pigs were being raised for their market value, to be sold. To have this large a herd destroyed, what is it? That, that's an economic catastrophe for whoever owned them. And Jesus makes no comment about it. The author of the book, Mark, makes no comment. And that offends people. It offends a lot of people. Bertrand Russell, well-known atheist, was offended by this. He pointed to it in an essay on why I'm not a Christian. And it's one of the things that he says, here's why. Quote, there is the instance of the Gadarene swine where it certainly was not very kind to the pigs to put the devils into them, make them rush down the hill to the sea, unquote. He's offended. He doesn't think much of a Jesus who would do this. Thinks there are other options. Now think with me. Thought exercise here. I wonder if this story was different. If we learned that 2,000 years ago, herdsmen drove their pigs to market, sold them, buyers led them off, butchered them, I wonder if that would offend us as much. Pigs in both cases would still be dead. That was their destiny in either case. But I wonder if the free market destiny would offend us less. Because that's economics at work. It's return on investment. Something we approve of. But here we think there is no return. It just seems senseless. That's because we're not thinking about it like Jesus is. Because... There is a return. Jesus traded 2,000 pigs for something. For what? For one human being. And he thought that was a reasonable trade. Now why is that? It's because human beings are eternal. We live forever. In that sense, human beings outlast every single thing on this earth. Every organic, every inorganic thing that is not human is a mere breath. The mountains, the stars, mere breath compared to human life. When all things on this earth are just dim memories, your life, the life of everyone in your family, the life of everyone in this room, the life of everyone on this planet, the life of everyone who has ever lived, will still be going. What does that mean? 
There is nothing on this planet that is more valuable than a single human life. The sum total of all the things on this planet is not worth more than a single human life. You are worth more than every non-human thing on this planet combined. And so is every other human being. You could, take the you could trade the entire planet for one human being and you would still be a bargain because you would trade something of temporal value, something that didn't last for something that did. But we don't think like that. Why? We live in an evil world where evil has devalued human beings. We live in a world that argues it's okay to kill the unborn, to euthanize others who are older. We live in a world that produces videos that portray torture and violence for our entertainment. A world that generates slasher films, films that run up body counts. We live in a world that engages in ethnic cleansing and genocide. A world that is not getting better over time, it's getting worse. So much worse that the 20th century, just 20 years ago, the 20th century has been called the bloodiest century in human history. Let that sober you. After the Enlightenment that believed we could improve humanity, we could make humanity better by elevating rationality and reason, after the rise of technology in the Industrial Revolution to improve people's lives, after the Enlightenment, after the Industrial Revolution, we have not become better people. We've become better at eliminating people. We live in a world that devalues people while overvaluing everything around us. And so we don't see the importance of rescuing one man at any cost. And that's the problem with our offense, if we're offended at this passage. We focus on the pigs, and we miss the result. That an image of God has now been set free from his bondage that no power on earth could set him free from. We miss that. We feel very comfortable critiquing the power that did set him free. And so we're offended, but it's an offendedness that's too small. We're offended, but we're not offended enough. Not offended about the right things. That an image of God would be bound by evil, unable to get free. We're not offended by that. Not like Jesus was. We're offended by pigs dying. We're offended, but we're not in our right minds. Focus on the man as the prize. Prize that Jesus wanted, whatever the cost. And when you do that, suddenly you learn a lot from the pigs. First thing you learn is that the man now knows he's free. Spirits are invisible to his eyes. He knows that now he's in his right mind. But how does he know that they're not still inside? Playing hide and seek, waiting for Jesus to leave. And then they'll come back out and take him over again. He knows that he's free. Because he has visible physical evidence that the spirits really left. I saw the same thing back in chapter 2. Jesus forgave a paralyzed man his sins, something that you couldn't see. And then he healed his body, something that you could see, so that you would know that the invisible thing was done as well. And it's the same thing here. Jesus told the demons to come out of the man, verse 8. How do you know they really left? 
because you see it in what they did to the pigs. That tells you this man was certainly delivered. Second thing you learn is tied back to what we saw last week when Jesus dealt with the storm in the sea. Here you have to cast your mind way back into the Old Testament. There's a time when Israel watched someone command the sea and immediately after drown a large enemy force in it. That was the time when Jesus, uh, when God rescued his people from slavery, from a bondage that no power on this earth could free them from. That was the exodus of Israel out of Egypt. What do you see now with these two passages, with Jesus commanding the sea, then drowning the man's enemies in it? You see Jesus now, not Moses, rescuing his people, leading them out of slavery to evil, a slavery that nobody else could free them from. He's telling you one more time why he came to this earth, what he came to do, to loose individuals from sin and evil. That's his mission. And it's only after he does that that he sends the person back into the rest of the world. Because it's only after they've been restored that they actually have a message to bring to the rest of the world. Jesus is leading a new exodus, freeing people from the true enemies of humanity. And then third, you learn one more time that your restoration and my restoration is not easy. It's not painless. It requires a substitute. That this man only regains his life when other creatures lose theirs. And there it is in your face one more time, what the Old Testament has trying to be, been trying to tell you. But that thing that we keep pushing aside, that your evil and my evil is so bad, it costs a death. Because for every rejection of God, a death is owed. That's what he told Adam and Eve back in the Garden of Eden. That's the price for rejecting in this God because when you reject God and you don't want him, you're rejecting life himself. When you reject him, what are you choosing? You're choosing death. To be rescued out of death, something else must die. But you need a death that's worth far more than all the pigs in the world. If your life is worth more than the entire world, then to ransom you after you forfeited your life is going to cost far more. It's going to cost at least a human life to ransom you, but to ransom any more than just you, to ransom all of God's people, it's going to cost much more than one human life. It's going to cost Jesus, the Son of God, his life. And so this Jesus, founder of the new Exodus, is also the substitute that makes the exodus possible. For this man to be restored, Jesus will have to be devastated. He'll have to face even greater rejection than just being told by these Gentiles, we don't want you, go away. He'll be rejected by his own people, by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and then he'll walk this man's path backwards. This man went from being a source of disruption to everyone marveling at him. Jesus will go from being the source of that marveling to someone, as Isaiah puts it, from whom men hide their faces. This man went from the tombs to the Decapolis. From isolation to community, Jesus will go from community 
to being abandoned by everyone, all his followers and his father will turn their back on him. From being with his friends and family to alone in a tomb. This man will go from death to life. Jesus will go from life to death because he wants this man. And he came all the way into Gentile territory just to find him, just like he comes all the way from heaven to earth to find you because he wants you. This is the gospel, right, in this little story. The world and everyone in it is trapped in evil. Jesus came to free his people and lead them out of evil at the cost of his own life. Don't expect everybody to embrace that message. They don't believe evil is that bad. But their unbelief does not change what Jesus is doing. Don't let that hold you back. Run to him. Follow him. Let him lead you out of darkness. Let him restore every last bit of you. Lord God, thank you for not leaving us to ourselves, to the future that we chose for ourselves. Thank you, Lord, that you have entered into this world with far greater purposes than any of us ever gave you credit for. Lord, bring home to us our desperate need of you, but bring home even more your amazing love for us. And then, Lord, fill us with joy, thankfulness that we can take back to you, that we can sprinkle around to the people around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's rise together in closing. As we heard, the price that was paid by Christ for life, for our salvation and hope is a great cost. And yet Christ willingly paid that price for us. May we find 